Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Rob Carney talking to us from Salt Lake City, Utah. He has a new book from Black Lawrence Press called Call and Response. He has some other recent books, too, and we'll probably talk about them a little bit as well. You know, he's originally from Washington State, and there is a flavor of the Northwest in his poetry. Right now, he's teaching at Utah Valley University in Salt Lake City. I mentioned the latest book, Call and Response. Um, and he also, I've noticed, it was rather interesting, has a book of flash prose, flash essays coming out. And I think we'll have to talk about that too, because amazingly, I never saw that phrase, though it makes a lot of sense. So anyway, Rob, I'm glad you're here and let's get to it. Okay. What What is that anyway? Flash, what they say? Flash essays. Yeah, well... Um, like flash fiction, I suppose, it has more to do with the word count than anything else. Um, one of the ways I've described them, because they're short, um, I, I see them as a 21st century update of a Japanese form, uh, meditative prose punctuated at the end or tied off or whatever you want to say with a haiku. That form oh, is okay. called the, the haibun. Yeah. And so this is me working in a sort of 21st century version of that that Japanese form haibun, I guess, because they the the essays are short, meditative, first person, um, and then they usually end either in a poem or some sort of poetic, lyric kind of uh, finality. Um, oh, it's not that uh, I I invented the form, right? It's really old, and uh, it's not that Flash is is something that I turned into nonfiction. I think other people have been working in this too, just not nearly as prominently as, as flash fiction. So the essays are all under a thousand words. Most of them are somewhere between 500 and, and, and 800 words. And uh, they are uh, about poetics, the environment, place, politics. So a good variety. That's, that's interesting because the, just the initial phrase didn't give me that idea that there's the little poetic wrap-up at the end or a burst at the end. So that's a very, very interesting idea. I've seen someplace, or maybe I've tried it sometime, to write like haibun, but don't worry about a haiku at the end. Just write something at the end that's yeah. like, a little, like a little poem. Well, I like the old Chinese guys a lot. 
you know, yeah. so. Well, I didn't, I, originally when I did this, it was because I was asked to, and I said, no. And uh, <laughs> I said, I don't know how to do what you're asking. And the, the editor uh, who was doing the asking is Simmons Button uh, from terrain.org. And he was uh, good enough to write the introductory essay for this book, Accidental Gardens, that you're talking about. Um, Simmons wanted me uh, to, to write him something. I said, no. Then I did it because he sort of uh, warmed me down. And while I was waiting here, if he liked it, another thing came to mind. So I wrote that too. And I sent that. He says, I want them both. So these will be the first two in a series. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to assign you a series and you need to come up with a series name. And I've been working on uh, this series for five years now. Um, the series is called Old Roads, New Stories. And the contents of the book are things that I've taken from those pieces over five years and refashioned, re revised and, and shaped up into book form. Whoa. Interesting project. Okay, looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, um, it's out actually available. It was gone from pre-release to release. Okay, we'll repeat that at the end so we get okay, it. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, let's let's um, get to call and response. Uh, that I would find it difficult to briefly tell people about that book myself. Well, so I'll, I'll let you do it. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Um, so call and response is built upon the idea of the call and response ritual. Um, and the, so the titles are in one voice and the responding poems in another. And it's arranged into four main sections called nine journeys, nine tests, nine answers, nine conclusions. And then also there are four longer poems that kind of act as a frame around those sections. Um, other ways that it's a call and response uh, ritual. There are poems, for instance, that kind of call out to each other across the table of contents. One of the early ones introduces a character named Kari's grandmother, and then she reappears in, in the journey section. And then at the end of the fourth main section, there's uh, a, a eulogizing kind of elegy poem for her. Um, sometimes they have similar titles, uh, and, and so there's a lot of kind of call and response moves, wow. I think, throughout this. And, and the entire piece is, is really structured. Yeah. Well, I hadn't intended to in the first place. I had nothing. I had one poem and that's not a book, but I really, really liked it. And then I ran across something in that journal, terrain.org. Uh, they were four poems in Icelandic by a guy named Magnus Sigurdsson. And uh, because it's online, you've got to scroll from the Icelandic down to get to the English trans translation, but I didn't. Suddenly I just thought this language looks really, really interesting. And it let me do a thing a friend had suggested ages ago, which is to do your own translations. Not because you know what the words mean, not because I speak a speck of Icelandic, I don't but just to look at the language and see, does it remind you of any kind of English equivalent words based on the letters, based on what you guess the sound might be? And so I did and I, and I liked it and then I just kept doing it. And over time, I had all of these things and I began to think about, all right, now how do I organize? How do I shape? 
And that's yeah. when the idea of call and response, since I was prompted by one language to find my way in my own towards something, um, they're, they're written brain blind because I'm just getting cues from this language I don't speak. And that was a new thing to work in, to have absolutely no deliberate intention to begin with whatsoever, and just to see what would happen. So it became structured, but it didn't start off that way. That's, that's really interesting that you're, you're translating from something you don't know what, not could say translating, from something you, you don't know what it is, but, but you have a hint. <laughs> you get well, little yeah, hints I, of, probably, of something that is. We were talking about meaning making, and from looking at what it was, you found something. Yeah, I, I, like a, in order for people on the other side of this to, to understand what I'm talking about, I saw, for instance, in Icelandic, a word that uh, it looked like svart prisir. And to me, that looked like smart priest. And that led to me writing a thing called Tell Us a Parable. Should, should I give an sure. example? Yeah, great. Okay, Tell Us a Parable. One priest had a talent for cataloging sin, a brain like a laser. No one minded when he fell from a ladder or wished they could feel more bad. Another packed mass like a stadium, but skipped six days of work. He didn't make lunch for the daycare, forgot the old. The smart priest kept a garden, seven boxes on his windowsills, larkspur, every shape and shade of fire, better than homilies. We love to see them in the morning as we drove by. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I remember that poem from reading through the book, uh, The Derelict Priests. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and part, part of it, too, is if I'm working, I've got one thing with parable and I've got priests as characters. I don't know if that predated me deciding on call and response as the big picture or if it was the other way around, but things started to kind of snap together that way. And again, to have one little initiating uh, spark, a word in Icelandic, svart prisir, uh, what's that in English, smart priest, and then others scattered throughout his poem that, that gave me other words. There was a word that looked like larkspur, that's why I picked that flower. It's not because I, I mean, I like them, but, but I don't know enough flower names to, you know, to, to speak like a botanist or anything. Right. So some of them were just prompted and suggested by this baffling but interesting language that somebody else way across the Atlantic was writing. In. Super. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, with the nature of the poems, why don't you read two more? And then, again, to get people a sense of what this is. Okay. Well, yeah, and I'll do two. I'll do two that sort of, in a way, um, work as a pair. Like I had one and then I liked, I liked it. So I deliberately did something similar. Um, it's, the, it's called, uh, Ever Wish You Were Famous. I knew a man who made money as a silhouette. That outline standing upstream, brilliantly backlit by morning, that was him, the famous photo, chin to the north. They've got a museum now somewhere and people signing the visitor's book. About him though, I only hear rumors, something concerning the moon, the next eclipse. And the thing that I liked was the idea that you can make money from some sort of strange, 
non-job. So I used that again in this one called, He's Such a Good Listener. I knew a man who made money from having three ears. While some stood in line at the plow shop waiting for their turn to get sharpened and golfers hunkered on greens and bells rang at school, he performed the trick of listening all afternoon. Professional nods, some autopilot smiling. His secret was that his third ear canceled out the others while also picking up the talk of distant whales. So not exactly a true call and response, but the idea of something happening in one place and then uh, a pair recurring in, a, in another place. I, I, I deliberately did that throughout the table of contents. That's just great. You know, we were uh, talking about leaps before. Mm. I wanted to say some things about leaps because you leap very, as I said, Bly would be proud because as he says, your leap at, the farther the leap, if it still works, the better it is. But you well, can't go too far or you lose your reader. And and you have a capability, for me, you have a capability of being a, uh, you know, uh, not really just straightforward kind of poems, but I feel like I know what's going on. So I think yeah. I attribute that to your, your leaping really well. Thank you. <clears throat> you know, there's a woman named Grace Cavieri who's kind of like, I don't know if you'd call her the ambassador or the empress of, of uh, poetry advocacy. And she's a playwright and a poet herself, but she's had a show on uh, NPR called um, uh, in the Poet in the Poem from the Library of Congress forever and ever and ever. And way back in 2006, I got to be on her show and Grace said something at the time um, that I hadn't really considered myself, but it, it, was, it was really complimentary and of course accurate. And I, I didn't ever forget. She said, there's a logic going on in your poems. They're so playful uh, and they make so many leaps. And yet there's a coherent logic all the way through. The one thing leads to the other thing, leads to the other thing, leads to the other thing. And then somehow by the end, you find the thing that pulls it together and it all sort of accordions back out and 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 i thought fantastic um because that's something that hugo richard hugo in the triggering town said you should do and i didn't know i was and then i did it on purpose i did it on purpose as an exercise i saw a thing on a flyer asking for submissions to a journal and it was just this weird fact uh the person you love is 72.8 percent water and then it asked you to submit love poems for an upcoming issue. And um, then the other thing I was reading at the time was Hugo said, the same person who puts one thought down is going to put the next one down. And so there is a kind of inherent uh, unity going on and people will supply it even, even if they don't want to, they can't help themselves. Um, people are meaning makers. And so you don't have to worry about all the slush and transitions in between, you can just go. And so as a test, I tried it. I came up with a poem, because I like the line, the person you love is 72.8% water, where I did that as a test just to see, and I convinced myself it works. That poem is from a long time ago, but it, I, I know it, it goes like this. 
The person you love is 72.8% water. I don't know if I'm going to hell, but I like toast for breakfast, and I can eat breakfast any time of day. A woman's slender arms make me wish I was a painter. Cats belong in every bookstore. They'll make the words seep deeper in your bones. If God and I were on a rocky beach, we'd search out perfect skipping stones. I'd tell him my favorite miracle, water into wine. My favorite mood is angry. That's a lie. My favorite sin is lying. That's not true. But it dresses up the story like a good storm dresses up the sky, like fire and fiddles take wood and make it speak. I know, I know, water isn't wine. But at night, when someone's thirsty, you can bring it cold as heaven. They can drink. Whoa. Yeah. So that's one where I think the whole project was to leap, to leap, to leap, to leap, to leap. Each one thing reaching some sort of logical extension of the thing before. And then the thing that you've got to do is find your way in the end to come at, all, you know, come at it in a, such a way that it unifies. And so I come back to water because that was in the title. And I come back to love mm -hmm. as, you know, an action as a gesture because that was in the title. You know, and along the way, you just have to delight people. Right. Not in a not in a strange, mystifying way, in a logical way. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know where it's going. They just need to know they're interested in seeing where it will arrive. Definitely a beautiful example of, of what uh, Grace was talking about. Thanks. It seems to me, man. Wow. I mean, it goes all over the place. <laughs> but as, as she pointed out, it but it has a direction. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to think of things like that are like butterflies. They look like it's erratic, but they're going somewhere. Mm. And they fly across the yard, you know? I like that too. <laughs> what are his palms like? Well, they're a little bit like butterflies. <laughs> Not that they're fragile, but that they kind of, I mean, you can't stop looking at them, right? Yeah. And they look like they're going all over the place, but they're actually, they're going somewhere. Yep. You just don't know where it's going to be yet as, as it's happening, I guess. Right. Yeah. Oh, very fine, very fine. Well, tell me about something else or read another poem. Okay. This is wonderful. Um, this is good for people. Since I did tell us a parable, I'll do one called Tell Us a Secret. Hmm. When night's aloft and the sky's torn up, someone's brother has to journey. Half to, half from, half until, doesn't matter, as long as the myths aren't skipped. The gold cup, the hovering firebird, the path to the lake. This is lightning and it wants a story. This is summer and it wants more wine. One time I was the brother they sent. That part isn't secret. The storm took the shape of a woman. That's the part that is. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you teach, right? Um, yeah. How about, I always like to get this from teachers. So what's what's a big thing you like to leave with students about how to write poetry? Oh, well, I what tell What are your that, favorite truisms? <laughs> well, my favorite truism when I'm talking to students is that they, they need to stop thinking about uh, choosing the subject. They care sometimes, I think, too much about what and not enough about how, right? Mm -hmm. So if they will just 
stop worrying that they don't have a melodramatic life and therefore nothing to talk about. And instead, enjoy and play with language. They will save themselves a whole lot of time. I, I, I say over and over that my job as a teacher is to try to save them time because I have found things uh, out by, by trial and error that took a long time, circuitously, frustratingly, and I probably should have known or I wasn't listening and I should have listened. But now if I can save them eight years at something, yeah. you know, that's, that's worth the, the, the price of tuition. Um, and that they don't need to worry about the subject. Instead, I give them exercises, puzzles, games to try to play their way through. Um, and I think that what ends up happening is that uh, though they might initially distrust me and think that's not a poem because I didn't choose in advance what my subject was gonna be and then drive every single word like a nail right into the reader's you know, forehead about it. Um, if they will just loosen up and say, ah, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I like the result um, and do it again and again and again, then they've already produced a series and they're at chat book length that they'll just, yeah. if they'll just sort of lighten up about uh, who's in charge. I think the words are what should be in charge instead of the writer. Ooh, the words should be in charge. Is, is a puzzle like giving them some really disparate words and saying, write something? Well, sometimes. I mean, I've had sometimes one time uh, or another in a class, I've asked people to think of three words that they really, really like. Only one of them can be, you know, more than two syllables. Um, one absolutely must be a verb. And they'll get deliberative and they'll think for a while. And I say, you're on the clock. You've got 30 more seconds. And it's weird to see people suddenly freaking out that they have to, <laughs> oh, it's not enough time to think of three favorite three words. words. <laughs> and, and then they do. And then I say, okay, great. Now turn around to the person next to you and give them your words. And they're like, what? And vice versa. And so they have these precious words that they have to give away. And now they got somebody else's crap words. And then the assignment <laughs> is you got to take those three words and you can't make it really long. It's no more than 150 words. Uh, so you can't just disguise the three that you were passed by your amigo or amiga. You got to use them as part of either a dramatic monologue or a prose poem or a lyric poem or whatever you want to do, but you have to use those three words. Um, and they have to feel absolutely integral. And so now the project is not to choose a subject, but to find a way to incorporate three words that they didn't want to use in the first place. Uh, and they always, they always are able to achieve it. And most of the times we cannot guess uh, what, uh, what words were given to them. And, you know, so that kind of puzzle. Interesting. Yeah. And others too. Yeah. Getting it from someone else is a really interesting trick. Yeah. Right. Your three words now give them away. <laughs> it's kind of what I did in call and response also, since I was getting words gifted to me by a poet, you know, who's writing in Icelandic. So, right. um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have come up with a parable about three priests if I didn't see that word sparked prasir. So, um, you know, whatever. I think you're better off if you're open to all the surprises then if you decide today is the day I will write my poem about X or Y or Z. Yeah. Well, at least you can get going much more easily if you just get For going. For me, yeah. yeah. For other people, you know, 
ignore my advice if it makes no sense to you because uh, you've got your own way instead. Any poet, I could ask that question, but always with poets who actually have to articulate something about it because you teach, yeah. I always find it interesting to see what uh, what you people say who teach poetry to kids or to well, adults, to anyone. I've had, I've heard people who've been very, very highfalutin about it, but I've also heard, uh, and he wasn't a teacher of mine, it's just I attended a reading when I was probably 23, um, Marvin Bell, who was on campus mm -hmm. where I was the summer in Tacoma at Pacific Lutheran University. And during his reading at one point he said, and it's so good that I never forgot, I like poems whose ideas have their feet in the dirt. And there you go. You don't need a theory. That's a theory right there. And it's images that are memorable. It's concise. I like poems whose ideas have their feet in the dirt. That's better than what Pound said, you know, about go in fear of abstractions because mm, nobody yeah. has to look up a word, right? Some people yeah, might have to know look up the is. word abstractions, but everybody knows what feet and, and dirt mean, you know? Yeah. So uh, he was great. I mean, she's probably a good teacher too. I'm just saying that, you know, every mm -hmm. once in a while you're just in the right place at the right time when somebody says something awesome. Yeah, it just grabbed you. We've got time for another one. Okay. Um, um, call and response is fun because it's so brand new, but uh, lots of people like sharks. And so I should uh, probably do something from okay. it. That book is actually different than this one. This has a lot of short poems. Um, the Book of Sharks is a book length poem. It is a book length poem um, composed uh, of seven movements, each of the movements having seven parts. So um, different and sustained in a different kind of way. Uh, this is a second movement from the Book of Sharks, a movement called Gathering. And it kind of goes to what you were asking about, about jobs and, and the role of you know, the poet and the teacher. So it goes like this. What do you do for a living is a complicated question since for a living and for money aren't the same. Living means a shoreline is better than a bank vault all those deposits of driftwood. And wealth is measured, measured by the vivid moments in your life. Money is just currency, though it wants to sell you your future. It has no past, no story explaining the sky, comparing the stars to a shark bite. It's plastic littering the sand dunes. It isn't the grass. Let's say I'm a gatherer. In the same way clouds are gatherers which isn't a ticket to riches, unless you value rain. Some say sharks are the ocean's anger at us for being in its future. They say it knew riptides and hurricanes wouldn't be enough, that it would take teeth to teach us, to move us from selfishness to awe. Most who hold to this story are quiet, but they mark the days of past attacks, a splash of whiskey in their coffee while they listen to the waves, listen to the wind chimes they've polished, then scrub the weather from their porches, paint their doors. These chores are their rituals, performed so you wouldn't even know. After all, red doors seem common enough, more like keeping up appearances than keeping track. Others focus on a different idea, and spend each April fasting, 
That's when coastal waters come alive with food. Nine miles of sardines in every predator, swordfish stabbing up from underneath and birds harpooning from above. Sea lions, dolphins, horizons of shark fins, all. They wait until sundown and parade from door to door, trading music for oysters, a gallon of last year's wine, and nobody thinks about winter. Nobody thinks about dying. Only a few of them, the oldest, hunger for their boats. In the oldest story we know of, sharks came first, the perfect idea, perfect shape, and then the rest of creation, the sun, the moon, this planet, to give them a home. We live on that afterthought, build boats to crisscross the water, build churches like islands surrounded by our cars. We kill sharks by the millions and sing along from our hymnals. In the end, standing at the gates of heaven, what if we're asked one question? How are my sharks? The best understanding I've heard was offered by a boy. His father had died of a fever the summer before. He said, people think dying is for every kind of animal but us, like it's so unfair we aren't special. I was just a boy then too. We were trying to climb down the cliff face and now we were stuck halfway with 11 hours till light. He looked past his feet at the water below us maybe to add up the distance. He said, my dad would have had the guts to jump from here. He'd have been on the beach already, building us a fire. Given their name, it should be obvious what salmon sharks eat still. You never expect it. First a tug and a sockeye's resistance, then a yank like the day is having a heart attack, just seconds, only till the line snaps and a gray fin breaks the surface. The sky isn't the only home of lightning. The ocean has some too. I'm a gatherer of what's been gathered. Not like the beach, more like a kid with a bucket, not a net, more a stall at the market selling fish or the scale or the news wrap. As purposes go, it's not a bad purpose to have. You can be the man buying coal for dinner or the woman carrying flowers home for a vase. I'll be the shelf the vase sits on. I'll be the tap on the faucet filling it up. Not the ocean, just an ear that listens. Not the shark, just a gatherer of memories swimming away. All right. Well, I'm glad you did that. Gave us a little excursion into the Book of Sharks. Thanks. And thanks for being here on Poetry Spoken here. This has been really good. Well, I appreciate you having me. I really appreciate the interest. Thanks. Well, folks, you're listening to Poetry Spoken here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. Our feature today, Rob Carney, reading poetry to us from Salt Lake City, Utah. Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. 
Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.